We had just finished the Gospel of John, and we're, using, we're building a series on our theology of missions, and so it's going to go for the next four weeks. But I want to start by talking about uh, my house, and then talking about just things we do that we sometimes wonder how they have meaning. If you go to my house, you will find a stack. I don't know how big it is, because we throw them away when the kids aren't looking, but a stack of comic books These are not comic books that have been purchased. These are comic books that have been created. They're called Superbub and Ultrabub. And Superbub and Ultrabub have an entire universe that they exist within. And in fact, if you know how you can get like the graphic novel encyclopedias and learn who's who and what they are and what their background is and all of that stuff, Superbub and Ultrabub have also created, they also have that as a part of their story as well. So you know everybody, the weapons they use, who they can kill, who they can. It's a boy house, so people are dying. (laughs) The planet they're from, the level that they have, the amount of authority that they have, these are all created, and they're everywhere at our house. If you come into our back door, it kind of opens up into the kitchen And usually my nine-year-old is sitting at the table, which is at the end, facing the door, and he is just drawing, he makes panels, and he's drawing the next story that is going on, gets stapled together, and it just gets moved onto the stack of the Superbub and Ultrabub series. Just a while back, I think it was like two days ago, I was looking at an old video of one of my boys who was seven or eight at the time, I think, and he had built a game out of Legos, an actual game with rules. And so he's like, well, you roll the dice and you move this much, but there's fire, you have to go back two spaces, and your goal is to get to this spot. And the video is him explaining it to me, how the game works and what you're trying to do. And if you go to our house, I had, I had bought PVC pipes, you know, thin PVC pipes. If you coach baseball, you know the value of PVC pipes, really if you do anything, but can help with like stride, how far you're supposed to go. So, hey, don't stride past the PVC. You can hold it here, and you can learn how to use your hips when you swing. Golfers probably do the same thing, John. You know, you're always trying to learn how to use your body the right way. Well, it didn't take long before those PVC pipes had combs attached to the end of them, and they became hockey sticks. Combs got taped on, and stuff got thrown on the ground, and the PVC was no longer used for baseball, uh, but mom's combs were used for hockey. This is all recent. I mean, this is my life. This is Courtney's life. Uh, even something like this slide that says, Sent in Senders, we have a friend at another church who we work with to create. I'll send an idea, and she creates a slide out of it. She builds these, uh, she builds these, she sends it to me. She goes, what do you think? Never once have I asked her to change anything. I'm like, it's beautiful, it's great. Uh, it, it, that, that communicates what we're going for, and the series is called Sentence Senders. Um, some of you love spreadsheets. You love to actually, when the formula works the right way and everything fits where it's supposed to go, and you take a bunch of confusing numbers and you present them to people who don't understand numbers in a way that allows them to make decisions, and you love to sit there, and you will just, I mean, you will get so granular. You're like, do you want to know where this half of a penny was spent on Tuesday? Because I can tell you. I, I honestly love making meeting agendas. I love a meeting that runs well. 
I love when everybody knows their role and people come prepared and they know what's going to be accomplished and they know how we're going to get it accomplished and it stays on point and everybody shows up prepared. A meeting that goes well, and for those of you who work in worlds that have meetings a lot, a meeting that goes well is like finding a jewel in a field and when you find it, you sell everything that you have and you go into the field and you just you buy the field so you can run good meetings. But even those who have to make sales calls, and you sit there on a Tuesday and you got these 14 calls to make before the end of the day, or teachers who tonight are getting ready for tomorrow, and there are two or three weeks left in the school year, and they're trying to bring meaning and value to what's going on, or the moms who are going to stay up extra late tonight and plan out the meal calendar for the rest of the week to be sure that everybody's fed and everything has its place, or the one who's at the grocery store on a Thursday afternoon ensuring that everything can be where it needs to be so that the home can run well. All of those things, we feel like they're not important. Maybe we feel like they are sub-spiritual, less meaningful than maybe what I do, the professional Christian that gets to plan sermons and talk in front of people. And I just want to say today, I hate that. I hate that you would feel as if what you do is less valuable because it doesn't directly involve the Bible or it doesn't directly involve preaching or teaching or leading in some capacity. I hate that churches fail their members because what they end up doing is teaching them if you want to be a serious Christian, you have to go into the ministry and everybody else just get jobs and make a lot of money so that I can pay the bills. And we can pay the bills. And so we teach people with enormous skill sets and enormous passions and great desires and all kinds of things, whether or not they're making money from it, who just love things, and they make superbub and ultrabub, and they design beautiful worlds, and they create universes, and we tell them, well, when are you going to get a real job? When are you going to do this? And I think... On behalf of every church and every sermon you've ever heard, I think that most pastors have failed you. And I feel like they've failed you because they have created no value between what goes on here and what goes on Tuesday at lunch. Or when you're sitting in your cubicle and you're going, all right, I have a spreadsheet before me and it needs to get done, but nobody's going to care. I have a lesson plan to make and you know what? No one's going to care if it gets made. I can just wing it. I've done this long enough that I know how to get it done. Got a stack of laundry to do and it's going to get done and no one's going to be interested in the fact that it got done. All of these things that we do, churches have done such a bad job at connecting why that matters and why that act itself is enormously spiritual, enormously valuable, and God-glorifying. And I hate that. Because we need a clear understanding between what we do, and why it matters, and how God can use it. We'll hear lots of stories today, I hope, or even just examples of that. And we need to kill the divide that exists between me doing a spiritual thing and preaching and you doing an unspiritual thing and preparing a meeting, making a phone call, leading something, serving in some way. What I do is not superior to what you do. 
So how does God give us our true purpose? We're going to see that from Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28. We're going to look at the task that God gave to Adam and Eve before, the, before sin came into the picture. I want to say before the foundation of the world, before sin came into the picture, the world as we know it. We are going to look at, some people call it the, the, the creation mandate. It's interesting because it's called a blessing it's actually called a blessing, not a command. It doesn't say, and God commanded them. It says, and God blessed them, which means that there's something about us doing this and blessing that come together. Interesting, huh? That it's not called commanded. We call it, that's why it's the creation mandate. It's really the, the creation blessing. That, that, that's what it is, and that's what we are to do. And so we will use this in the, as the first part of a four-part series, which develops four ideas. And one is, what are we doing here? What's God's aim? The second, you can figure it out, is how did it go wrong, and that's sin. We're going to talk about sin next week, but today we just we get to enjoy it. Sin is going to be, how, did, how do we ruin all of the things that we could be doing Thirdly is, what does God do in response? And then finally is, what is God's methodology for finishing it out? But what God has done in the garden, he will continue on to fruition in a new heaven and a new earth. And actually what we see in the new heaven and the new earth is the fullest expression of what he said in Genesis chapter 1. It's not a new mission. It's the fulfillment of what had always been declared for us to be doing. We're going to do this, and all of these sermons, I'm going to just do it in three ways. I'm going to talk about a problem that exists, the solution God gives, and then what do we do about it. Problem, solution, application. It is the first sermon outline that seminary teaches you to use. Problem, solution, application. I, now, now that I'm saying that, you are going to go back and listen to old sermons and realize I use it a lot. I'm going to use it every week. We use it every week because I think all of these ideas address a problem that we ourselves have created. This one has to do with our purpose. This is how we're going to start. Here's the problem. You're going to have to give me a little latitude with this one. The problem is that we misunderstand what it means to glorify God. We misunderstand what it means to glorify God. I was talking to Courtney Maffitt, who was singing beautifully here this morning, and I, I said, if, if, if I, like, there's some words that I can use at Genesis in a sermon that are going to give liver quivers, and one of them is glory. If I say, this doesn't glorify God, or this glorifies God, or God's glorified through this, you're going to get the amen corner from somewhere. And my concern is we have no clue what it means. But because it's such a lofty word, a weighty word, which is actually the Hebrew idea of the weight, because it's a weighty word, we're afraid to say, I don't really know what it means. Well, church should be the place where you can go, hold on, don't get it. Don't really know what that means. Don't know how that works. Don't understand. You guys all use glory like I'm supposed to understand what it means. But honestly, it just feels like a throwaway word. Like, um. So when you don't know what to say, say glory, and they're going to think you're on it. I'll give you an example. Now, please don't. I'm glad Tim is out in there because he's quoted Westminster Catechism before. Uh, if I ask some of you this, I say, what is the chief end of man? What would you say? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
That's the Westminster Catechism. It goes through, right, catechisms go through questions and answers to try and train us in what it means, our system of theology, and how we understand what the word reveals about who we are. So the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Great. How? How? If I, I can give you the answer, I can't actually give you the means. So the quite, second one, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The word of God which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. That doesn't really answer the question, does it? How do we do it? By re- do I just read the Bible and I glorify God more? There are people who don't know Jesus who read the Bible all the time, and they don't glorify God. There are skeptics who read the Bible, they don't glorify God. So I need something else. Now we get a little more here, question three. What do the scriptures principally teach? Okay, Cool, you can follow the logic. The scriptures principally teach that man is to believe, what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And again, when you're that vague, what do you need me to do now? It becomes very hard to answer, like, like how do I live out Monday afternoon? That's what I need to know. You guys are all going to go back to something, and it might be just waking up and getting the kids ready. It might be going to school. It might be preparing a lesson. It might be dreading the calls you have to make. It might be a confrontation that you've been praying for all weekend. And the question is, how do I glorify God there? Like, I can't show up to the meeting and go, hey, you know what? I don't really know what to do here, so I'm just going to start reading the Bible out loud and hope that that gets me where we're supposed to go with it. Like, on a, like, you're supposed to be leading the meeting here. Like, like this is like, you're an engineer. Like, we, you have to help us understand what the project's going to be and how it's going to get done. Like, well, I just heard the Westminster Catechism, and I just know that the only thing that I'm supposed to do here is read the Bible, and that's going to help us. And I say you have to give me some latitude here, because it might sound like I'm diminishing the Bible. If you stay at Genesis very long, you know, one thing we want you to do is read the Bible all the time. We want you to engage with it. We want you to memorize it. If you were here on Family Sunday a couple weeks ago, we sang it. We are teaching our kids it right now about praying to the Lord of the harvest. Like We want you to know and understand and comprehend and be able to better live out what is in the scriptures. But I want us, like Sound of Music, starting at the very beginning, which is a very good place to start. There you go. There you go. So what happens when we hear something like that or we train in that methodology is that we create a chasm, a chasm between menial tasks and spiritual tasks. And the chasm that exists between leading a meeting and leading a Bible study is so great, we don't know how to bridge it. We don't know how to help people glorify God every day because We only know in church speak how to make it involve a few things. And if it doesn't involve those things, then we don't know what to do. It's a conundrum we all have. So what do we do? We create systems and structures that just keep you busy in church stuff. Hey, go to this thing and be in 14 Bible studies and lead these things. And like all the while, you're just trying to cram them in before and after your work shifts. You're like, like, okay, well, I'll go to Bible study here, and then I'll go serve here, and I'll go do this here, and I'll go do this here. All the while, you don't feel any more equipped or confident in how you will actually honor God in the workplace or honor God in the home. or What does God require of me right now? 
and we'd create this divide. Now, it's very easy to talk about these kinds of more spiritual tasks because we promote them. Prayer, we might even say being nice, but I know, that's a law. Singing, coming to church services, reading the Bible, going to Bible studies, reading books about God, but not books about leadership, reading books about God. Those are spiritual things. And then there's other tasks like yard work, building things, grocery shopping, going to work, making money that we go, and those are other tasks. Problem is we create a divide that I don't think is actually in Scripture. I think if you go to how God created the world, we've created a divide that isn't in Scripture. We've created a class of people, me and others like me, who are the uber-qualified, and you better praise God for us because we're going to give you what you need. I don't view it like that. I have a role to play just as you do. And that role might give me more opportunity to study, more insight into what's going on in people's hearts and lives, uh, enough stuff to get most of you arrested. Like, I have all of that going for me, but I'm not that different. I'm fundamentally not that different. And in fact, I was texting with a guy who's been attending our church uh, for a few weeks, and I was like, I want to sit with you and learn everything I can about your job, because I know nothing about it, and I'm thoroughly interested. I just want to know how you do it. And he even said, he was like, it's, it's, I, I, he's like, being a Christian in this space is difficult because so many people are antagonistic to it. And I'm like, I want to know. I want to know about it. And I was like, you should come tomorrow. Like, this sermon's for you. And he was like, we're going to be at my parents' church for Mother's Day. And I was like, well, bring them here. I don't know. They're not here. The divide that we have created means that most of what we do falls into the bucket of insignificant. And only some of what we do falls into the bucket of significant. That's a terrible place to live. If, I, if, if, if 70% of my waking hours were deemed insignificant because I couldn't create a spiritual definition for them, a spiritual reality for them, then I have created an incredibly bad system because 70% of your waking hours, you're going to feel like you're wasting your time. That's an unfortunate way to live. It's an unfortunate way to, to try and honor God when most of the time you think what you do doesn't matter. That's a pretty big problem that most churches have created and we don't know how to overcome. I struggle with how we're going to overcome it. In fact, I don't think we have overcome it at Genesis. I don't think we have, I think we want to. I think we long to. But I still think we create a chasm where what you do most of the time, we don't have a definition for how it matters, but what you do some of the time, we can really help you with. But to get to the solution, we have to go back to what God created. Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28. And I'll just say it like this. God created us, you've heard these words before, to rule and to reign. God created us to rule and to reign. The way I might say this when I teach it in the falls, my fall classes, is to bring God's benevolent care to every corner of the earth. Now, we get to Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28. 
And Genesis is broken up. First 11 chapters are kind of set aside differently, and then 12, we zoom into a family. We're going to talk about that in two weeks, all these ways God has continued this mission in every era, in every time, and in every way that he's been thoroughly consistent Now he's interacted with us. But in 26 through 28, especially chapter 1, we get the world God has created, a world that is free from sin. And as God goes through each day of creation, he gets to the last day, And he creates man before he rests. Everything else has been created, and then he creates man. And Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28 talk about this at a larger level. Genesis 2 speaks about this in a a granular level. But at the larger level, this is what we see. God's created the earth. He's created everything in it. He's created the sun and the moon and the stars and the light. Everything is as it should be, but there is no one there to tend to it. So the purpose, we see the declaration in 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the things that creep on the earth, all the creepy crawlies on the earth. That's the desire. Now, we often talk about image as emotion. We do. Being created in God's image means you have some kind of emotion. You reflect God emotionally. Dogs have emotions. So are dogs created in God's image? We use all these words of what it means to be created in God's image, and we don't actually look at the next verse to get a better idea on what this might mean. 27 and 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This was our memory verse for the kids in February. And God blessed them and said, have emotions. Is that what it says? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and, what's that word? Look at it. What does it say? Subdue it. Interesting Interesting, subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now look at the next word, and have what? What's it say? Begins with a D. Have dominion. Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Our view of image so often has to do with how we feel or how we might act, but not what we are doing. I think if we went back and we could actually go pre-fall somehow, like we go back in a time machine and we go pre-fall with Adam and Eve and we say, what does it mean to be created in God's image? They wouldn't say feel, have emotion. That would just come part and parcel with being who they are. I think they would say, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, in whatever language that would have been in. Because that's what God said. And so why do we go to secondary sources to define what it means to glorify God when God seems to have defined it rather well for us? To rule and to reign. But how does God do this is an important question. Well, there's some things God has done in Genesis 1 already, hasn't he? Here's one. He has brought order out of chaos. The Genesis 1 world does not seem just tranquil. 
The earth was formless and void. And God speaks and creates. And what he creates is diverse and it is beautiful and it's filling. And now he's creating light to warm the earth and everything is starting to work together. But there was nothing there. And then something is there. And that thing that is there is beautiful and he has Adam and Eve and he creates them from nothing and he gives them a blessing, a task to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So there's a destination everywhere, but there's a task. Subdue the earth, have dominion. Interesting. So that means I would posit, hear me here, then when my friend Greg teaches this, I'll make it his fault. My friend Greg teaches this, he goes, I don't think When they were placed in the garden, God gave them a well-manicured garden. I think he gave them raw materials, and they were to actually create something beautiful with those raw materials. Aren't the pictures that we usually see naked people with leaves over them who are like everything's happy and everybody's talking and like like everything's doing what it's supposed to do already? But that then, if, if the role, like if I said clean the house and I, you came into the house and it were immaculate, I go, what do you want me to do? Like it's, it's already done. So it seems as if God has left some things, I'll say, that, I'll say undone, but I don't mean sinful. I mean needing continual care, needing continual oversight. He's left things for them to do because that is a part of image bearing. Now think about what God does all the time. In fact, the author, I believe of Hebrews says, like he holds together everything. Jesus holds together everything by the word of his power. God is still doing this. He's still holding things together. He's still keeping this world in order. He, like, he is still doing the things that, that he was doing at the beginning. But he has created us to be a part of that to bring order from chaos, to come alongside, to to create beauty and meaning and to find raw materials and make something else from them. I think this is why we get so satisfied. Well, I'll say we, I mean many of you, Johnny, Blaine, others who like to garden, uh, where you get done with an exhausting day of yard work, but then you look at it and you're so fulfilled. That's worship, friends. The reason that you are so fulfilled is not because finally you had a little time to do it and your wife's going to be happier for it. The reason you're so fulfilled is because you're taking raw materials, you're taking disorganization, and you're putting in effort to create beauty from it. You're taking something disorganized and chaotic and putting in the effort to make something meaningful from it that then birds can use for their nests. If you plant fruit trees, people can eat for their sustenance. It's not just so you can win yard of the month. What a shallow reason to have a beautiful yard for a sign and a gift card to a nursery for $25. That is such an unfulfilling reason to create something beautiful. This is why we get satisfied after a church work day. And Gary's out there by himself, strong-arming every stinking weed that seems to exist. And we get done and we're like, that was, that was so worth it. 
I got paid zero dollars, and I'm tired and splintered, and I might have poison ivy, but it was so worth it. This is why when you give children a ball in a field, they don't just sit there. What do they do? They create a game. They create a way to play and to keep score and to interact and to use their bodies. Why? Because children in balls and fields, some things need no explanation. That's why. Because this is what we were built for. This is what we do. And yet, at some point in time, we start to kind of dichotomize this idea where we go, no, 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 that's less important, this is more important. I go, no, that is important. That's important. Continuing to find ways to bring value and to bring meaning and to bring organization, to bring structure and to bring God's care and his leadership and his temperament into places where it doesn't exist. That matters. But we misunderstand what it means to glorify God and we don't think any of those things fall into the bucket of significance. Only our Devo time does. And it's a shame. It's a shame because then we don't know why we should be on the cleaning team. It's a shame because then we don't know why we shouldn't help organize things. It's a shame because setting up for events and taking down for events just feels like a task. And it's not about preparing people for worship or preparing an event to be executed. Like it all becomes just about accomplishing a task. And again, what a small reason to get up in the morning to accomplish tasks. If that were my calling card or your calling card as people who have been saved by Jesus, then we might as well just not get up in the morning because there's nothing of significance to contribute than just punching out a to-do list. This is why when ladies here who took them when you were handed flowers, you weren't just handed a flower. You were handed a design. That somebody took time to give attention to and organize in just such a way that it presented in a certain way with a certain look. This is why teaching your kids what it means to be kind is so important. This is why accounting and spreadsheets are helpful. Because you can make good decisions that benefit people when you know how much money you have to spend. When you know maybe you should give more, maybe you should save more. This is why that matters. And yet, what do we do? We diminish those types of roles. Why? Because we're foolish. This is why we love music and poetry. Because it takes just words and puts them in ways that are memorable. That have a deeper impact than just the words themselves. This is why you go see movies. Not just to be entertained, I hope. But because something about the way it's constructed reminds you of something that is true. And the hundreds or thousands of people that have played some role in creating what you will go participate in, what you will go watch. I mean, Marvel's done a good job at teaching us to stay till the end to know what the end credits scene is. But have you ever just sat and just, you look at all the names, all of those people to create 
two hours. I was watching um, <clears throat> some guys talk about it in special effects guys and how every there were special effects houses that existed <clears throat> for every different depth or interaction with Thanos in the Avengers movies. Like, so, yeah, oh, yeah, every single, you know, every single design house had their own version of him. There was the version at a distance that didn't include facial hair. And there was the version that was close up that it did include it. And they're like, why would an alien have hair? We don't know if aliens would have facial hair, but we're used to seeing male faces with pores and whiskers. And they ask these questions. Do the pores stretch? You know how if you kind of pull on your face, the pores will, you'll see a little of this pore stretch out? They go into the granular detail of ensuring that the pores on Thanos' face stretch. And there's somebody or many people in the world where that matters for them. If you saw the Avatar movie, you were watching what a bunch of people created. There's one scene in particular where it's somebody's hand on like, you know, whatever weird animal it is that they're riding. And about this much of the hand is real. That's it. Everything else was designed, even the way the water splashes. And you can hear the designers talking about, well, Water and air are interesting. And so when you come down into the water, it does something unique. And they're even talking about how they film these scenes. And they're like, well, we film these scenes with ping pong balls at the top of the water. Because water creates mirrors. And so if you're filming underwater up at an actor, you're going to catch a design on the top of it that you don't want in the film. So we fill the entire pool with ping pong balls so that we can only film what action we want to see. And then we go in and we create the reflection that we want to have accurately and remove the camera crew and anybody else who would be seen. There are people who exist to think about that. And I would hate for them to show up here and for me to say, you know what, that doesn't really matter. Could you join a community group? And I'm like the community groups guy. I want you in one. But not if it doesn't help you do that in a way that honors God. If it's just kind of this detour on your day and then you go back into whatever you were doing, I would hate that for us. I want to read uh, to you a quote from a man named Richard Middleton who's a theologian who writes about end times and not really end times because those guys use a lot of charts, but... Um, he writes about the new heaven and the new earth. I think I have two quotes from him in here. Nope, just one. Here's what we have. If mountains worship God by being mountains, and stars worship God by being stars, how do humans worship God? Because you know, psalmists speak about the heavens declaring the glory of God, creation declaring the glory of God. How do humans do this? By being human. In the full glory of what that means, humans, the Bible tells us, are cultural beings defined not by our worship, for worship is what defines creation. All creatures are called to worship, but the human creature is made to worship God in a distinctive way. 
by interacting with the earth, using our God-given power to transform our earthly environment into a complex world that glorifies our creator. That's what we bring to the table being made in God's image. That's how we worship God. And this creation blessing comes before the fall. It comes before Genesis 3 where sin enters into the world. It comes before the need, as we saw it, of a Savior, a Redeemer, Jesus who comes to die. All of these things with which we have spoken about, we talk about them in terms in our current world, but that mandate, blessing, existed before sin was a part of what was going on. I don't know how much time passes between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. doesn't seem like much. doesn't seem like much, but what we get as we move to Revelation 21 and 22, the very end of the story, remember two chapters at the beginning where there's no sin, two chapters at the end where there's no sin, but the difference between chapters 1 and 2 and chapters 2 and 3 is that it really seems like, and this would be Middleton's argument, that chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation are the fullest extent of what would have been expressed had there been no sin in the first place. Continuing to create and build and structure and organize. So now there's a whole earth that is reflecting the image of its creator. Where it's used the raw materials that were beautiful in the garden, even gold, using raw materials to create spaces and roads. There are roads in the new earth. It's the fuller extension of what God has brought us about to be and to do. Again, sin ruins that. That's where we get to be sad next week. But the challenge that that puts before us in regard to what do we do with it, because sin has ruined our ability to do this kind of mandate in a benevolent way. It's why you have to come back. This is four parts. You've got to be here for all of them is if we think about what this means for us, is that we are to saturate this world with God's rule and God's reign. And I'm speaking today to the believer, the one who's been made right by God. We are to saturate the world with God's rule and God's reign. I'm going to give you A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. That's how many illustrations I have. I'm sure there are more. I'm going to give you a chunk of illustrations as to why tomorrow and even what happens after this is significant too. For the moms of young kids who work inside the home, your role is eternally important and making lunches on Monday matters. Having them help you make lunch on Monday matters. You're taking raw materials and you're creating something from it. You're organizing a table. You're establishing a space where you can have conversations and engagement and development toward the Lord. For those who are in sales, you can be kind, responsive, organized, detailed, showing people a side of your creator toward them. When you're in a call and you ask them how they're doing, when you're interested in them and not just their sales, right, their business, but they actually realize you care about them and it's not manipulative because have you ever had somebody interested in you because they want something from you, 
where you don't even care if you make the sale, if you can encourage them. Because God's put you on a phone tomorrow to have a conversation with a client who has a need, but you can be the Lord's representative in that phone call. And the thing that you offer to him or to her is something that they need and would actually allow for their business to thrive more and perhaps employ more people or create more value for somebody, right? Like like that still gets to happen. I was talking to a friend this morning. Uh, He was a part of my old church. He is a pharmaceutical salesperson. I know where your head's going. Oh gosh, everybody's in it for money. Let me tell you what he does. Money notwithstanding. He sells what are called orphan drugs. Have you ever heard of an orphan drug? An orphan drug is a drug that is so costly to make and would impact so few people that most pharmaceutical companies would not actually take the time to produce it. So the FDA has created incentives for pharmaceutical companies to build out drugs that might save one life out of 50,000 people. And he sells that. And we were texting this morning. And I said, I want you to know that what you do when you fly to Arizona and you talk to a hospital and you save one life, that that matters. It's not just a job, it's a calling. It's a purpose. Don't lose that. Don't get caught up in the pay Don't get caught up in the salary. Don't get caught up in the benefits. You get to save a life that the world has said not worth trying to save. Actually isn't financially viable to try and do this. We would only lose money. And this is a protein deficiency in the blood that goes usually undiagnosed until you die. And by the time you realize you have it, it's almost too late. He gets to go help people live. He actually said, there's nothing more meaningful to me than when I get to go talk to a patient whose life our medication helped save. And I'm like, that's awesome. It's not about the golf game you did on the back end. It's about the life you saved. For the accountants in the room, and I know there actually are people here today who are that, so this is for you. You help people see things that are hidden by the way you organize and the way that you can communicate. You can show how something can be done. In fact, so people like me can step out in faith. People like your bosses or your business owners can go, we can't. it's going to be hard, but we can do it. You get to use your skill set in a space where you can challenge people to make good decisions and those decisions are going to be in faith. That's awesome. That's not secondary. That's awesome. To the teachers, your job does often feel thankless. I know it's Teacher Appreciation Week and you're like, no, 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 I got some gift cards. Like, I get it. But so often, don't you feel like you haven't made an impact? When I talk to some of the teachers at Shindelwolf down the road, it's one of our partners that we work with, it really sometimes just feels like, man, You go through a whole school year and sometimes you just don't know if you've made an impact. Does it matter? I mean, I get to step in and go, it absolutely matters. It absolutely matters. 
And for some at Schindewolf, they are in their creation and organization of a classroom. They're creating a space that's calming, that allows for somebody who's had a difficult morning or might have gotten to school by themselves, a place where they can come and learn. That is not insignificant work. That is not unspiritual work. That is image-bearing to the fullest extent. When Matt starts a coffee shop with his friends and they go, Are we gonna, is this thing going to work? And we're like, I don't know, but it's going to be awesome. I don't know if it's going to work. I don't, know, I don't know how it'll go. But then when you show up on a Friday and it's slammed and you talk to people and you see what's going on and the ministry conversations are going on, that is image bearing. That is not just profit making. To the engineers in the room, you build roads and design proper drainage plans. That's for you, Brad. That can be thoroughly God-glorifying because now you're subduing the earth and creating order. You could talk to Brad right now about the amount of flow you need in certain constructions with certain ground compositions and certain... You can look at all of that and how much does it need to drain and what are you producing. There are people who exist and then what is that? That's subduing the earth. Creating the spaces and the places and the designs. My friend builds strip centers and everything like that. And he is so detailed to be sure that everything is in its right place. So that somebody else who can build can see it and go, we can do that. To the one who builds a bridge, the civil engineers who build bridges, and you save thousands upon thousands of commuting man hours by creating a way for somebody to get to and from work more quickly multiplied over the life of the bridge. You have created order out of chaos. You have been reflecting God's image. You are glorifying God. If you have a business idea, track it down. Be a great boss and use it to bless others. Use it to start businesses in other countries where there are none. Gary, go sell trailers in unreached places. Use your contacts and everything you can. I mean, I mean like, like, why do it just so that I could get wealthy or you could get wealthy, right? Like, why, why do we pursue things just so we could live a good life? That's not benevolent. God created the whole world so that his creation could enjoy it. Why then would we take careers and only make them about us? You have to make a living, don't get me wrong. I hope many of you make great ones. I say many because some of us have to, you know, make a little less. But I hope you use it to bless others, to create order, to bring value, and to reach the unreached. Because remember the destination, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth. Take what you're doing in life and find the way God's image is connected to it. And when you are discouraged or brought down or you just are staring at your computer screen, you're like, I don't want to keep going. And it's 8.45 on Monday. You're not sure how you're going to get to Friday. Go, how can I bring order here? How can I bring value here? How can I bring God's care into this space? And it might be to have a conversation with the employee, your coworker who has just walked in, and needs a moment. You can have that conversation. 
It might be in sending the email that you know you need to send so that three other people can do meaningful work that day. But it all matters. It all matters if we rightly understand how God has created us. That's what it means to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I would be so disappointed if the new heaven and the new earth were just these worship services where one person's teaching to a bunch of people and we sing songs for 24 hours straight. Why? Because that's not how we were created. God didn't put Adam and Eve in the garden and go, now just sing songs forever. He gave them work to do. There's work to do now, and there's work to be done when it's all made right. And that stays the same in every era as we await the Lord's return.